Hey everyone, this is Kristen from The Head of the Bed, and for today's show, we are going to be doing something a little bit different. I've found in talking with most CRNAs about their practice that everyone really has a story to tell, and I feel that it's those stories that I've found to make an impact on my practice. So today we're talking with a CRNA that has been kind enough to sit down with us and share a story, a particular case with us. Uh, his name is Eric Carlson. So thank you, Eric, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And just to tell you a little bit about myself, uh, I've been a CRNA for 30 years as of this year. I graduated in 1985 from George Washington University, and uh, I was in the Air Force at the time, or I had been recruited into the Air Force as part of my education and scholarship at the time. And from there, I served five years of active duty at Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. And when I left the Air Force, I decided at that time to stay there uh, because I felt that it was a good place to get some more job experience before I made my next move. As it turns out, that was a good decision on my part because as history would have it, uh, I got recalled to active duty. And fortunately, I was recalled to Keesler Air Force Base, even though my orders did state for um, worldwide duty 12 months. Uh, that was the first Gulf War, and fortunately we were only a short time involved in that particular mm-hmm. encounter, and I was there for about four months before I was discharged again. At that point, I went and continued to look for a job, which ended up being my long-term job, which is here, working in Asheville at Mission Hospital for then Asheville Anesthesia Associates, and uh, I have been there ever since. It's now all care clinical associates. Great. So Eric and I were actually talking one day. Um, He was precepting me, and I asked him if he could tell me about a story or a case that he could remember or would remember for the rest of his career. And immediately he said to me, I had a difficult airway case. So Eric, can you tell us a little bit about what happened that day? Yes. It's one of those cases that if you ever have one, you'll never forget. And I remember during the time period following that case, wondering if I'd ever get over it. And I asked one of my colleagues who had had a different but also traumatic experience at the head of the bed, and I asked him if I'd ever get over it. And he looked me straight in the eye and said, you will never forget it. You'll live with it for the rest of your life. And I thought, that's pretty harsh. But he was honest. And I have lived with it for the rest of my life, and I will continue to always think about it. So yes, it was a huge impact for me. The case itself involved a difficult airway, and it was an emergency C-section at 2 o'clock in the morning, which is always what you dread to hear. Mm -hmm. But I was called and told that we had an emergency C-section. I was told that the obstetrician wanted to go right away. And so I went up to the uh, delivery room as quickly as possible, and the patient had a had an epidural in, but it had not been dosed. It was wearing down. And I asked her if I had time, I asked the doctor if I had time to redose the epidural, and she indicated she did not want to wait for that, that she wanted to proceed as quickly as possible. So the patient was placed on the operating room table and prepped and draped, and we chose to go ahead with a rapid sequence general anesthesia. 
my assessment of the patient was nothing too much out of the ordinary. Needless to say, she was full-term pregnant. She was, I believe, Filipino descent, and her stature was maybe a little bit short and maybe a little fluffy, so to speak. But her airway to me looked like it should be manageable. And because of that, I proceeded without any further concerns to go with a rapid sequence induction. One thing I mentioned about rapid sequence induction is one should never take it lightly. I don't care whether the airway looks like it's the perfect airway from heaven or wherever. You should always consider a rapid sequence induction with serious risks or possibility of serious risks. So during the induction period, um, everything was going according to plan, uh, except when I tried to intubate her to use laryngoscope to scope her, I saw nothing familiar in terms of my what I would expect normal anatomy. As I recall, the first blade I was using, laryngoscope blade, was a two miller, and I could not identify any familiar structures, just a lot of soft tissue, very edematous. And at that point, I switched over to a Mac blade, uh, Mac 3, to see if I could have any better view with a Mac 3, and I was still unable to identify uh, any sort of structures that I felt I could work through. Following that, I tried to ventilate her with a hard airway in place, and I was unable to ventilate her. Needless to say, time has elapsed at this point, and going through my mind is, I'm in trouble. And the obstetrician was standing patiently waiting for my command to start the C-section, and I went through the whole thought process of, what should I do next? And my first thought was, I may lose the mother. I do not want to lose the baby. And so I looked to the obstetrician. I said, get the baby out. And I felt that she would be able to do so, hopefully in a timely fashion, and maybe at least save the baby, even though I may possibly not be able to save the mother. At the same time, I asked the circulating nurse to stat page one of the surgery residents, preferably ENT, and have them come to the emergency to the operating room to help me get an emergency airway. Uh, I was solo in the hospital. I was the only anesthesia provider in the hospital. Our staffing at that point allowed for in-house CRNA, and our anesthesiologist, who was quote our backup was allowed to take call from home. So needless to say, that could be a crucial time period. And in this particular situation, my anesthesiologist was at least 20 minutes away, and I knew that. So I decided to, I had to proceed on my own and decided the best, the next thing I could do because I couldn't ventilate and I couldn't intubate, and her sats were diminishing quickly. I actually take that back. I'm not even sure if we had SPO2 at that point. Mm -hmm. This was in probably 86, 87. So that was right around the time period where 
uh, oxygen saturation was becoming standard use. How many years out of school have you been? I was probably more than a year out of school, less than two years wow. out of school. And so my experience was adequate, I would say, but not extensive. I've always heard that out of school, there's about a three to five year learning curve with experience. And it's a fairly significant learning curve during that time period. I would like to say that you continue to learn for the next decades after that. But that initial steep learning curve is supposedly about three to five years long. So I was in that sort of initial phase of learning you know, independent practice. And in the Air Force, we had a very independent practice. So at that point, I would say my experience was limited, but should have been adequate for handling most airway situations. The following steps that I went through involved the idea of doing a, an emergency cricothyrotomy. I had never done a cricothyrotomy in my life. And in terms of my training, I had read about it, and I may have gone through some sort of basic lab training, but not with a real cadaver. And But I had thought about it a lot because I knew that this possibility of being placed in that circumstance existed. And we did not have the same airway adjuncts as we do today. Today, I think that the different adjuncts we have to turn to may have made a difference in this particular case. But my alternatives were fairly limited at that point. And because of the acuity of the situation and the fact that I couldn't ventilate, I had to make a decision, and I made the decision to try a cricothyrotomy. That being said, I didn't make the decision to go for the traditional scalpel type of a cricothyrotomy because, to be honest with you, I didn't feel comfortable with that. But we did have an adjunct which was a little bit more than a cricothyro stick with a needle because it was a much bigger bore. The adjunct was sort of like a hawk's beak. It was in the shape of a right angle practically, but it was a sharp tip needle, hollow bore, probably the equivalent of maybe an eight French or something along that line. And we had that in our carts, and we had been trained in how to use them. So I felt fairly comfortable as long as I could identify my landmarks. And to me, one of the difficult aspects of an emergency airway like that, especially if you're going to try to get a surgical airway of any sort, is just that, identifying your landmarks. The average person, you can identify their landmarks. But usually, if you're having a difficult airway, they probably don't have average good anatomy. And so you're in a situation where you hopefully can identify enough landmarks to make a safe approach. And I felt that I had identified my landmarks well enough, and I was looking for the cricothyroid membrane. And I went ahead and was actually successful on my first try to put this Mm, airway adjunct cricothyro stick into the trachea. Then I was presented with, okay, how do I ventilate? Because it was attached to, as I remember, it was a 5 or 10 cc syringe. And so I could aspirate as I went in, and I aspirated and got air, and I was comfortable with the fact that I was 
in the right location. But then I had to consider what I did next because it was a lure lock. And I did not have at my disposal a jet ventilator kit to put onto that lure lock. In retrospect, I would say that you should certainly have one on every emergency airway kit. And to be frank with you, at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm not even sure that we had the emergency airway kit available in the operating room. It all happened so quickly that I only was going off what I had in my cart and what I had in my head to help me. And so what I did, and I had thought about this, it was not totally spontaneous, I took a small endotracheal tube, I think it was about a number five endotracheal tube, and took the plunger out of the syringe and inserted the endotracheal tube into the barrel of the syringe and inflated the cuff. That gave me a seal, but in all honesty, it didn't give me the ability to truly ventilate the patient. At best, I was oxygenating the patient. And I think I was doing that. I was able to oxygenate. At the same time, the call had gone out for a resident to come help. And being two in the morning, we didn't have a lot of residents in-house and certainly not specialty like ENT. So a general surgery resident came in. And if I remember correctly, he was third year. And he came in and said, Eric, what can I do? I did know him. And I said... I need your help. I need you to get me a surgical airway. And he said, what's the situation? I told him that I couldn't ventilate and I could not intubate. And he said, okay, I'll go scrub. So at this point, you had the endotracheal tube in the airway. In uh, Well, I had it attached to the barrel of the syringe. Okay. And I was bagging through that apparatus, basically. Okay. And that's why I say I was able to probably give oxygenation, but not ventilating, but not truly ventilation. Okay. And so when he said, I'll go scrub, I was, I told him we have no time to scrub. And I literally took a bottle of betadine, poured it on the woman's neck and said, your tray's there, your gloves are there. You need to cut now. He looked at me wide eyed and probably as scared as I was and said, I've never done this before. I said, you're a surgeon, you're better at it than I am, cut. And he went ahead and was able to, with some difficulty and a fair amount of bleeding, he was eventually able to get a surgical airway. And then we were able to put a regular tube in place. I don't recall whether it was a regular endotracheal tube or whatever, but we were able to get a tube in place and we were able to start ventilating. By this time, my anesthesiologist had also been called And by the time he got there, we were that far along that we had already obtained a surgical airway, and I was ventilating, and the patient seemed to be stabilized. Meanwhile, during this whole time period, the obstetrician at my request had gone ahead and done the C-section and was able to get the baby out in, as I remember, less than three minutes. She was quick. And the baby came out with APGARs, satisfactory APGAR scores of, I believe, seven and nine. Wow. And so I felt that at least we had accomplished that portion. But my patient, after all of this transpired, would not wake up. And so we transported her to the intensive care unit, placed her on a ventilator, and basically said our prayers and followed her for the next several days. And unfortunately, she was comatose for, I would say, three or four days. 
she did eventually wake up, and she was fully functional physically. However, she may have had some anoxic damage in terms of her mental capacities. And eventually she was discharged under her own power. In fact, I actually encountered her as she was being discharged from the hospital, and I talked to her briefly. Nothing important was said, but she was able to communicate and talk in a fairly normal fashion, although possibly a little bit slower, but seemed to be pretty functional. And alive. Um, And alive, no question about that. And so, in retrospect, the process did transpire to, I believe... There was a suit filed, and in the Air Force or any branch of the military, as a provider, healthcare provider, you are not personally held liable, but the suit, if filed, is against the military branch, whichever branch you may be in. And in that particular situation, the suit, if it I don't know how far it got, to be honest with you. I did have to give a deposition, and I did have to um, sort of give, in that deposition, my version of what happened. Um, The obstetrician was also deposed, and she gave her version of what happened. In the critique of the process, which transpired at some point, I don't remember how far, how long afterwards, the Air Force critique did find fault with my management of the situation. And their critique was, my error was in asking the obstetrician to do a rapid C-section to get the baby out safely, when they say I should have asked the obstetrician, who was a surgeon, to obtain a surgical airway. Of interest is in her deposition, she felt we made the right decision and that I made the right call because she knew that she could get the baby out in a rapid fashion and therefore save the baby. Her feeling was that if I had asked her to get an emergency airway, surgical airway, she was not trained in that, she was not comfortable with that, and she had never done one either. And she felt that that would have been time wasted that could have had a detrimental effect not only on the mother but possibly the baby as well. So that was the question that I faced in that critical time period. And in retrospect, even though the official findings say that that could have been a misjudgment on my part, in retrospect, I still feel that I made the best decision I could make under the circumstances. And it's easy for a panel to sit around and dissect something like that But when you're in a critical situation like that, you do not have time to think of all the ramifications and possibilities and options. And I just went to my first option, and that was the instinct to save the baby. That's where we ended up. I believe the case was eventually settled out of court, but not being named in the suit, I was not personally informed of any outcome of the suit. And as far as I know, the baby was healthy, and the mom was healthy enough to at least exist on her own and not require any home care. Yeah, and it's because of that critical decision-making that Mm -hmm. you made in that moment that that baby is alive and that mom is alive. Right. And in retrospect, if I had it to do again, 
if there are other things I could have done. Today, I think it would be a different outcome. Today, I think that with the airway adjuncts we have, I probably could have done some sort of an airway adjunct and probably avoided having to have that anoxic period and have that period of where I could only oxygenate and not ventilate. And I do not know how much time it took me to go from inability to ventilate to obtaining that cricothyrotomy. It was it was a time period of who knows. Yeah, a blur. Yeah, it's all a blur. Those types of things. And it's obviously is a situation I've lived with since then. And I mentioned that one of my colleagues who had also had a bad uh, incident said that I would live with it, but it would get easier, it would get better. And needless to say, you do get through it if you choose to pursue your career. You have to. But it has always and will always influence my thought process if I have a difficult airway. Because always in the back of my mind, I know what the outcome could be. And there's no worse feeling than having a bad outcome, regardless of what the extent of that bad outcome is. And I know that you had said, you know, something like this that happens is always going to affect you later down on the road. In particular, is there anything that you've done in your practice that you've changed? I think because of that incident, I am more aware of the potential for an airway disaster. And I approach the idea of a difficult airway with that knowledge. And I'm probably more familiar with our emergency airway cart than the average CRNA in our group is. In fact, I would be willing to bet the average CRNA in our cart in our group has very little familiarity with our emergency airway cart because we don't have to use it that much anymore. Sure. We have adjuncts within our anesthesia cart that can probably get you through the vast majority of your airway crises. And if you have to pull out the airway cart, then you would probably find most people rifling through the drawers looking for the proper equipment. That being said, there has been at least once or twice that I have actually given an in-service on our airway emergency airway cart, and this interview reminds me that we need to do it again sometime in the near future. I want to touch a little bit on the communication process during this critical incident. You know, what was going through your mind? How were you communicating with the team when you're making these decisions? Well, being uh, the wee hours of the morning that it was, it wasn't a large team in the operating room at the time. As I recall, I probably had a senior resident who, as I th stated, was probably third year OB, maybe fourth year. There was no attending available. The attending, um, I believe, as long as they were third or fourth year, the, the residents were allowed to at least start a C-section on their own if it was considered urgent or emergent. So I believe there was the third or fourth year resident and there may have been a first or second year OBGYN resident as well. And then in addition to that, there was a circulating nurse and a scrub probably and myself, no anesthesia tech. So literally I was the only anesthesia provider in the hospital, let alone the, the operating room suite. And so my communication was to the surgeon directly, 
and she was very responsive and very helpful. She immediately made the incision and got the baby out. As I mentioned, it only took her three minutes. The other communication was to the circulating nurse, and she was the one who was making phone calls for me and stat paging the surgery resident and calling my anesthesiologist and telling him that we had a critical situation. And as I said, despite the fact that he was notified almost immediately, he was still 20 minutes out. And needless to say, 20 minutes in an airway situation is not going to be much help. Now, you mentioned that when you went in and you took one look, you took one look with a particular blade, Mm -hmm. and you decided then to change your blade selection. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, you went to mask and you could not ventilate. Correct. Can you walk me through, you know, your, do you have a, did you have a particular algorithm and, you know, what was it that made you decide right then and there, I might not save this mom and I need to get the baby out, you know, choosing to go for that emergency airway versus Mm -hmm. going for another device. Cause I feel like sometimes, you know, in the case studies that I've read, you get into trouble when you continue to intubate, you continue to intubate, you continue to to try try. all of these alternative airway techniques. Mm -hmm. And then no one says, yeah, you're, you're swirling the drain and no one says we need to do a surgical airway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, can you talk to me about what made you decide to go to that early on? That's an interesting question. As I said, I think every CRNA or every anesthesia provider should have in their back of their mind some sort of a mental algorithm that they're going to go to because you never know when you have to switch from plan A to plan B to plan C. And if you don't have some sort of an idea of what your algorithm would be, then you don't really have the time to figure it out in a given crisis situation. And so I think that I had, in my mind, thought about it and had thought, okay, if A doesn't work, then B, and then C, and then D. And in that circumstance, I feel that I probably went through that. I went through two different different laryngoscopes, uh, blades, and... And at that time, you didn't have an LMA, for example. No, LMAs did not exist. to be honest with you, I think the only adjunct that I had available to me, I don't even know if we had fiber optic, to be honest with you. What about a did. bougie? Believe it or not, we didn't have bougie. Oh, wow. I so don't remember having bougie. bougies until I came to mission. Hmm. Um, but in that circumstance, I don't know that a bougie would have helped because I was never able to identify Ages. any landmarks whatsoever. Yeah. So could I have tried a blind bougie attempt? I make, Maybe I could have, but by the time I failed with two separate uh, laryngoscope blades and failed at trying to ventilate with, without and with an airway, um, a hard airway, things were far enough along that I knew that I didn't have time to continue different efforts and I had to make the decision. And as I said, I think I went in there not necessarily for that particular case, but I entered that particular circumstance it, with the al- algorithm already in place. And now I'm not saying it was hard, you know, hard and stone type algorithm. For sure. But I certainly had gone through the scenario several times over my short career at that point. And since then I've gone through it many other times. 
And that algorithm would change today because we have different alternatives. But as you mentioned, at some point, when things are spiraling downhill, somebody has to make that decision at a really early time, a relatively early time, to go for a surgical airway. And since I've been in my present practice, I can think of probably less than a half a dozen, and it may only be two or three times that we've had to go for a surgical airway. And um, they're not pretty and they're not easy unless they're in the hands of a very experienced practitioner. And I have since gone to a couple of emergency airway classes and I've actually done cadavers and pigs since then. And because I feel that even though it's not likely, if you have some familiarity with it, you stand a better chance than none. Exactly. I think that it's definitely a great tool to have in your back pocket. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you might not ever do it in your career, hopefully, Mm -hmm. but if ever given that opportunity that you know what to do in that situation. And WCU this year that we were able to actually perform uh, Craig thyroidomies on pig tracheas, and it was go. a great experience. Yes. And I will take that away with me forever. Right. Hopefully, I won't ever have to use that. But um, you know, it's a great tool to have in your back right. pocket. But you know, you have those people that are practicing mm. in rural communities, and sure. they're the only anesthesia provider. And absolutely, that and those are the people be... who are definitely at risk. Yeah, for sure. Being the only anesthesia provider in any given situation, I don't care how experienced you are you have to put yourself at a little bit more of a heightened level of awareness because you can't turn to somebody and say, here, you take over or give me a hand because that somebody may not be there. There may not be anybody more experienced or any more help than than you can provide for yourself. Mm -hmm. You can hopefully get a second set of hands, but you may not have any experienced hands to help you. Mm -hmm. And just wrapping up, I'm thinking about... You know, you were newly experienced coming out of school when this happened to you. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for graduates that are just right out of anesthesia school and what to do Mm. when placed in that situation? First of all, be mentally prepared. As I said, have some sort of a plan A, B, C, and D in your mind at any given time. Always have the idea that if this doesn't work, What's my next step? And especially if you anticipate the possibility of a difficult airway, plan ahead. You're much better off being prepared and not needing it than not being prepared and finding yourself already behind you, the starting line. You need to have your preparation. And so if there's any consideration that you may have a difficult airway, don't hesitate to get out the emergency airway cart and bring in the glide scope or whatever else you have as an alternative to um, the traditional laryngoscopy. In terms of other preparation, if you haven't had some training, which you have been fortunate enough to have, and again, that's just one little blip on the map, I think you could make an argument for going to an emergency airway course at least once every several years just to refresh your memory, not only on known techniques, but maybe learn new techniques. And there are airway courses out there that I've heard are very, very good. I went to one which I thought was excellent, but there is one called the SLAM airway course, and it's pretty much 
targeting ER and anesthesia providers. And so it's an advanced airway course. And I know that it's given annually in different locations throughout the country. And I have not personally attended that course, but even at this late stage in my career, I plan to go to another airway course sometime in the relatively near future. Great, great. I think that's great, you know. And that's, you are continuing to learn in that mm -hmm. aspect, you know. that It's a steep learning curve in the beginning, but continuing to advance your practice and doing those workshops, I think it can only benefit you. You have to remember that when you're at the head of the bed, whether you're an anesthesiologist or a nurse anesthetist, you are considered the airway expert. And if you don't have a fairly comfortable grasp of that, then you need to continue to strive to be that. Well, thank you very much, Eric. I think that everybody can benefit from hearing that story. And uh, thank you so much for taking some time to sit on the show with us. You're welcome. Right. I, I appreciate the opportunity, actually. Great. Thank you so much.